0: Hi, this is Colin McEnroe so what is this you're listening to well how should I know you're the one who's listening to it no I actually do know it's a full interview with Stephen Metcalf who is the host of Slate Culture Gab Fest and a guy whose mind I just really enjoy a lot and he's working on a book about the 1980s right now we recently had a conversation about why Stephen thinks that Donald Trump's goals one of his kind of psychic underpinning goals is to avoid being Jimmy Carter And he's got a pretty good argument for it. And so a shorter version of that conversation appeared on episode seven of Pardon Me, another damn impeachment show. But this is a bonus episode of Pardon Me. It's the full conversation with Stephen Metcalf, the long form. So if that appeals to you, then you should be listening to the rest of this. Now, a couple things that I need to tell you about, too. If you are a subscriber to Colin McEnroe Show podcasts, I have to tell you that we're having trouble doing new ones because we can't put them on the air because our time slots are going to be eaten up by the impeachment trial. So we're going to lean in a little bit to impeachment and pardon me. But we'll also be dropping some stuff into the Colin McEnroe Show feed. So if you're a subscriber, look there. A lot of them are going to be little sort of, well, we're calling them Colin Grams. God help us, little things where I bring you up to date about something, tell you about something, and then those will inevitably conclude with me begging you to subscribe to Pardon Me, another damn impeachment show, which if you're listening to this, you probably already do. And we're also going to launch an impeachment newsletter that'll also be kind of a Colin McEnroe show newsletter. That'll start on Wednesday, January 29th, and you'll be able to start subscribing to it should you so desire, at ctpublic.org slash newsletter. All right, is that enough? Is that enough preamble? Let's just hear me and Steve Metcalf. Given the focus of this particular show, as we try to meld a political process, a governmental process, with a set of cultural reactions to that process— It's kind of amazing and almost delinquent that we haven't had Stephen Metcalf on the show yet, but we do now. Stephen Metcalf is the host of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. He is working on a book, a long-awaited book about the 1980s, and he kind of specializes in exactly that kind of Asian fusion dish that we're talking about here. And he recently wrote a piece for the New York Times about why he thinks one of the defining impulses for Donald Trump. One of the ways in which he shaped his early identity was the plight of Jimmy Carter circa 1979. He joins us now through the miracle of Skype. Welcome Stephen Metcalf.
1: Thank you so much for having me back, Colin, and I'm uh, happy to help correct this delinquency. (laughs) All right. So in
0: 1979, we know that Donald Trump was a swell and he was swanning around and being a bit of a popinjay as I think you say in your piece, uh, and probably can walk into any club in New York that he wants to. And I think, as you also say, looking forward to future divorces. But what's going on in the world? Remind people what's happening in, in 79 that might be vaguely getting his attention.
1: Sure. A couple of things. One is that There were several vivid incidents that happened over the course of 1979 that seemed to symbolize or capture a culture-wide nervous breakdown that had been gathering, you could argue, since 1968, but had been gaining speed from Watergate on There was famously the disco riot, a baseball game in Chicago descends into complete mayhem, right? So the heart of American nostalgia is essentially a gigantic riot after a crate full of disco records is blown up by a a local disc jockey. I mean, an image of total social breakdown, really, the Bronx's burning happens in 1979. These televised images on Monday Night Football of arson set fires in the Bronx, very opposite to this story is in July of 1979, there is a truckers riot in Levittown, Pennsylvania, protesting the super high price of gasoline in a very typical suburban American community. A bunch of truckers pull into the common Five Points intersection. They park their trucks in the middle of the intersection, shut down all traffic. One trucker jumps up on his rig and starts delivering a kind of stem winder speech he's manhandled by the cops, and all of a sudden mayhem breaks loose. The mayhem includes young teenage rabble-rousers, burning things, including torching cars and a sofa, but it also includes ordinary suburban housewives coming out and screaming their heads off. And effectively, at the basis of all of this is really the unprecedentedly high price of gasoline. And 1979 preeminently has been described as the year of the gas line. Ordinary Americans, in order to get from point A to point B in their automobile, often had to skip a day, they had to wait till an odd day based on their license plate in order to go get fill up a tank of gas. I remember this. I was in eighth or ninth grade. You had to pull up to a huge, long queue of cars in order to get to the gas pump. There was this general sense that post-war American society, its consumerist nirvana, had washed up on the shoals of kind of a (laughs) semi-apocalypse. (laughs) No? Overstated? Well, no. Beautifully put, I think. Beautifully
0: put. I just want to say that when you wrote that in the Times, all kinds of bells went off in my head. I mean, one of them is, of course that Donald Trump has spent the last six weeks or so screaming his head off about water conserving toilets and light bulbs and dishwashers. I mean, he's in full rebellion against what we're about to start talking about Jimmy Carter and his push for energy conservation. He is still having this kind of toddler meltdown over that idea that somehow or other that that is a symbol of American weakness that we just can't just can't turn on the water tap and water walk away or that we can't, you know, have a light bulb that's, you know, 400 watts or something. That, that, and so you're, I think what you're saying is a lot of these anxieties are located in that moment.
1: Yeah. I mean, the post-war social contract had been premised completely on the building out of the American suburbs. And that, in turn, had been premised on the United States more or less controlling the price of oil. And that broke down in the early 70s, thanks to OPEC, the uh, Arab oil cartel, and also the collapse of the U.S. dollar. We were not able to control the purchasing power of our own currency relative to uh, the global oil price. And it flew completely out of control. And Trump becomes Trump at exactly the moment that that's happening and exactly the moment that succeeds it but that's getting a little ahead of our story.
0: Well, let's let's catch up with our story. So, we should talk about Jimmy Carter as a symbol. I mean, I kind of like this Ernest Becker type psychoanalyzing that you're you're doing of Trump because in a way, he's still kind of sorting out his masculinity, you know. And I mean, he's For the most part, sorting it out in a fairly unattractive way. But to whatever extent we look to the president of the United States, who has always been a man, as some kind of expression of masculinity, we're seeing Carter increasingly understood as this kind of Charlie Brown, David Copperfield figure to whom things happen as opposed to the kind of person who makes things happen this menu of things that happen to him include like rabbits menacing him in a, in boats and stuff there's a there's a way in which he's he is an acted upon figure rather than an actor and one of the things that you're suggesting is that Trump is watching that process too
1: no, absolutely. And and one of the things I tried not to do in the piece was ultimately psychoanalyze Trump. His need to be regarded as hyper-masculine and dominant at all moments, to me, betrays like a, a neurotic terror of appearing weak or feminized. I mean, it has to be the flip side of that. Why that is, I can't tell you, but there's no doubt in my mind that an aspect of that part of his personality coalesced and became focused On the figure of Carter, as a in Trump's mind, a pathetically feminized and weakened American president. And so,
0: a part of this, of course, then does lead us to the Iranian Revolution. So, kind of set that up for us too.
1: Sure. So, and I want to be clear in what I say next is I'm talking about this sort of symbolic valence of the hostage crisis, and I don't in any way mean to trivialize it as a real event in which 52 Americans were held against their will in Tehran for 444 days. There was an enormous human cost to it. But to speak a little bit about its symbolic importance, it just seemed to take this society-wide nervous breakdown that was happening in America, our sense that the post-war order internally but also globally was deteriorating quickly, and Carter is a feminized or weak, or as you say, passive figure to whom things happened as opposed to an active man of agency. All of it coalesces around the fact that in November 1979, a a group of student revolutionaries surround, invade, and then finally take over the American embassy in Tehran as part of a revolutionary movement to overthrow the Shah, who is a kind of client dictator ally of the United States. They proceed then to hold that embassy and hold those 52 hostages for well over a year. In an age before cable TV and the internet, this was as omnipresent as a piece of news has ever been in my life. It led the evening news every night. It was on the front page of the paper virtually every day. And as those days began to mount up and mount up and mount up every predisposition to see Carter as a weakened passive figure. And it made the Carter presidency essentially an inevitable failure.
0: Right. Really, one of the things that I remember about the hostage crisis is that it kind of invented the program Nightline. Mm-hmm. Nightline yes. was essentially invented as a way of keeping tabs on that. Koppel ended the show, I think, every night by saying which day of the hostage crisis this was for as long as it continued. And in a way, it was beginning, it was probably the, the leading edge of the modern mediathon, the kind of thing that we would see in a fuller-blown state later on when CNN did come into existence and you had things like Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas, you know, Mm -hmm. where everything would just sort of melt away and there would just be that or really the OJ case being another early example of that. This was that, but not on steroids because there weren't any steroids.
1: Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, and also bear in mind, as part of the media sphere that we inhabit, there's just a tendency towards amnesia. You, a new story enters the pipeline. It gets flogged for anywhere from 24 hours to one week is an eternity. This was 444 days, well in excess of a full year. It was like O.J. or Monica Lewinsky or, you know, the impeachment trial of Clinton and now Trump. It just occupied the general share of the, sorry to use that term, of the society for a very, very, very long duration. And it just ebbed away our sense that we as a society were in charge of our own destiny as we were so sure up through the mid-60s to late 60s, as we had been sure for a generation or more that we were. And now it felt as if we weren't. And that made Carter so right to be a kind of scapegoat.
0: I think there's also this sense then and you first of all, we should say we are not imagining that this imprinted itself on President Trump's mind because at one point he talked about potentially hitting what 52 sites in honor of if that's the right word Mm -hmm. of those 52 hostages.
1: Yeah, clearly it was on his mind. I mean, the inciting incident for my piece was the killing of Soleimani. This was an overreaction that appeared to have flabbergasted the military establishment. And the question was, well, why? Why overreact so intensely to this? And Trump essentially gave away the game when he claimed in a tweet that, you know, were the situation to get out of hand, he would target these 52 cultural sites explicitly as a kind of revenge for the 52 hostages. The thing that drove, I think, quite plainly, that drove Trump to overreact and kill Soleimani was the surrounding of the American embassy in Baghdad. These chants of death to America, burning of American flags, and an embassy looking as though it's suddenly vulnerable to a mob. You don't need to be Donald Trump for these to be evocative of a turning point in the American self-image. And for Trump, they're a massive trigger.
0: Right. No, they should have given him a trigger warning. They should have said, you know, before we do this, President Trump, this is going to remind you of something that really bothered you at the time. And so just, you know, kind of be as ready as you can. So, The other part of your piece is also about Carter's famous malaise speech, as it is, I think, kind of unjustly come to be known, where he was exploring a set of questions, seeing if he could make some kind of dispositive statement that would put the country on a different kind of footing. So say more about that.
1: So in July of 1979, the truckers riot in Pennsylvania has just happened. It horrifies everyone at the White House is aghast that this has happened and feels as though they need to respond to it for quite a while. Months, in fact, there's been an internal battle in the Carter administration over whether the president should deliver a totally policy driven kind of bullet point memorandum style speech about energy policy, like a major new direction in energy policy, or whether he should deliver a kind of sermon, a kind of secular sermon on the state of the American soul. And the person pushing for the uh, sermon is a young operative at the DNC named Patrick Cadell, who's become obsessed with a book called The Culture of Narcissism, which was a huge bestseller in 1979, which purported to be a kind of both a clinical diagnosis of the deterioration of the American character, but also a kind of almost modern day Puritan Jeremiah about who and what we've become as a a people. And Cadell is enraptured by the book, though there's no evidence he actually read it. He read about it in Time Magazine. But he loves the thesis and one of the words that its author, Christopher Lash, uses, malaise. And so Cadell, for reasons I think that have more to do with his own self-advancement and his own really quite cold political calculus, thinks that Carter ought to deliver a speech that addresses this sense of uh, spiritual lostness of the American people. And the trucker riot is the final thing that throws Carter over the edge, and he decides to book the time on the networks and deliver what's become called the Millet speech, even though Carter himself never actually uses that word.
0: Right. And so the Millet speech is, as you say, an attempt to talk about energy policy, but it's also an attempt to talk about how people are feeling, uh, about why there is this kind of collective loss of faith or loss of spine. And as you say, Carter is notably a very deliberative, thoughtful person. He's, uh, as you point out, you know, influenced by Reinhold Niebuhr, so he thinks— about human activity, partly in terms of mortal limitations and things like that. And in a way, maybe he isn't the right guy to talk to a nation that's already kind of wondering if it collectively is Charlie Brown.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, in one sense, he was exactly the right person because here he is a Southern Baptist. He was elected for his supposed simplicity and piety. He was the antidote to Nixon and to Watergate. And he at moments in his presidency enjoyed enormous popularity for being just this sort of plain-spoken, trustworthy, believable figure. And secondly, was he entirely wrong? I mean, looking back on it from the standpoint of 2020 and climate change, his prescription was really to rein in our overconsumption and stop seeking meaning solely within the confines of a consumer society Those seem like pretty good pieces of advice. And among the many things misremembered about the speech is not only did he not say the word malaise, the speech was overnight a hit. I mean, immediately the press thought it was a kind of masterpiece of rhetorical courage. And he got an 11 point bump in the polls. But as the hostage crisis kicked in, the malaise speech became a symbol of Carter's impotence. And it's over time been wrapped around his neck.
0: It's funny that you say that thing about about Carter and being the antidote because whenever anybody starts citing that Christopher Lash book, I think of the book that preceded it by, let's see, at least 15 years. And that's a book by Philip Reith called The Triumph of the Therapeutic in which he argues, you know, in a pretty conservative vein, that Freudian culture, that introspection and the notion of our problems being addressed by introspection or by therapy – for looking at the human condition, has replaced religion. And he thinks that we're going to go to hell in a handbasket because of that. And it's interesting that, you know, I mean, Carter is kind of a restorationist that way, too. He's essentially arguing that you can do both, right? That you can be reflective, that you can think about yourself and who you are and why you might have made certain mistakes in ways that are very specific to you as a person. But, you know, first and foremost, he's a Baptist Sunday school teacher. What more could you want in that situation?
1: It's interesting. I mean, I suppose that the contrast that Reef and Lash are making is between a therapeutic culture and a tragic worldview, right, and a tragic worldview accepts that there are inherent limits to human consciousness and life and purpose, and that those are impossible to transcend, and there's a unique form of creaturely misery, which is to be a human being who thinks that those limits are arbitrary and can be moved or pushed out or obviated completely, which is just a falsity. And there is a way in which American culture took this very Freudian idea that character is fate and made it our own in this perverse way. We essentially said that, no, character is actually malleable it can be improved it can be examined through introspection and made into something new it's sort of plastic surgery for the soul which is not what freud meant at all and the curious thing about lash is that he was really a serious freudian i mean he really believed in the drives in the ego the superego and the id carter i think was suffering from the influence of cadell In the original draft of my piece, I called him a zeitgeist hustler. I think he had really picked out a few key concepts from Lash without engaging deeply with that book at all. And he had no understanding that this was a serious call to live within inherent human limits. And so I think you're right. It became a kind of Frankenstein hybrid which is one of the keys to its total failure.
0: So we wind up with these two competing versions of masculinity, one of which uh, Carter embodies and the other of which Trump embraces. So the Carter version, interestingly, is a kind of quiet strength. I mean, I'd like to point out that among any recent president that I can think of, I mean Jimmy Carter's the only person I would trust around a group of power tools. I mean, the only one who, who actually, you know, has known working blisters to use Elvis Costello's phrase. A guy who can build a house, swing a hammer, do all this kind of really er male stuff. You know, do do it in a quiet way, not need to call attention to himself. And so that kind of sort of Gary Cooper quiet, strong cowboy guy is more there in him. And then the bluster The false strength, the quick resort to very flashy forms of violence, either over weaker opponents or or in situations where you don't really risk your own physicality, basically Biff the bully in, in Back to the Future. Is that his name? Biff, I think it is. You know, I mean, that's kind of the one that Trump embraces and he seems to be doing it in a very reactive way, like you're saying he doesn't want to be Jimmy Carter, I think think the other person he doesn't want to be is Barack Obama, who was also that guy, right? Didn't need to be super noisy about it, had a kind of strength that wasn't allowed strength.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, what's going to happen to American masculinity when algorithms, robots and drones take (laughs) over all of the traditional masculine pursuits? Right. When masculinity goes from being a highly integrated feature of a functioning economy so that its productivity is on display all the time to being a anachronism, it expresses itself symbolically and aggressively and through overcompensation. And I think it's no accident that at a moment of general crisis in American masculinity, a blustering fool who evaded military service because of bone spurs is able to cast aspersions on men like John McCain and Carter, who did actually serve, who know what actual physical courage is like. And as you say, other men who actually have worked with their hands or accomplished something in the traditional masculine way, which Trump never has, and yet get away with it. I mean, that to me is the most remarkable thing. It must be that masculinity A is in crisis generally and B as one expression of that crisis is going from being actual and pragmatic to symbolic and performative, it's not clear to me where that line points to but nowhere Nowhere, not dark.
0: <laughs> so, I just want to point out to you that until the robots become self-aware and slay their masters, people will own the robots, and the people who own the robots and the AIs and all this kind of stuff—they're—they're they're still going to say, "Well, I'm not using my robots to build houses for the poor." That's not what my robots are for. So, you'll still need the equivalent of Jimmy Carter to go out there and swing a hammer. So, let me bring up a slightly grim scenario in the next few months, which—and I, I hate to do it—but Jimmy Carter's not well. I mean, he's just amazing resilience. He and Ruth Bader Ginsburg are the people who just, you know, bounce back all the time. First of all, when he dies, he's going to have the Baptist equivalent of the Assumption of Mary, right? I mean, the entire world. This is the guy who defeated the guinea worm, as he always called it, the guinea worm. You know, you sort of wondered, I mean, Trump didn't handle McCain's funeral well. What would Carter's funeral be like?
1: We can only imagine how Trump will bungle it and disgrace himself in the process. And not not be invited to it. Yeah, well, that's true too. So he'll tweet as it's going on. It's interesting to think about how people's public image and persona shifts over time according to the shifts in public mood. You know, really what we need to believe about a person at a given moment. And so, you know, this kind of chorus of relief that Nixon is gone and this mass projection of hope onto Carter as a kind of savior as it turns into a total symbolic utter defeat and to the point where it becomes a generational symbol for political defeat. I mean, the Republicans, we should say, have been running against Jimmy Carter for whatever it is now, close to 40 years. They've uh, held up Carter as a symbol of the total failure of of liberalism, uh, falsely in my view. Over time, Carter patiently, quietly, without courting the limelight, has done the actual work of being a Christian. And over time, I think the public has come around to him and now sees him as a man who lives his principles and, and sees him in contradistinction to every president, really to some degree. And when he goes, it's going to be interesting to see how divergent the responses of the American public and, the, as you say, the global public will be to that man's life. And this one person, this one nasty public dissenter will be there two thumbs blazing on Twitter trying to counteract it and he will fail.
0: Let's hear, this is a good place to end, but let's hear kind of the other side of that conversation. This is Stephen Colbert asking Jimmy Carter if he prays for Trump. You pray a lot, Um, do you pray for Donald Trump? I pray that he'll be a good president and that he'll keep our country at peace Mm -hmm. and uh, that he'll refrain from using nuclear weapons Mm -hmm. and that he will promote human rights. Do you think your prayers are being answered so far? Well, uh, we used to have a pastor who would say when you pray, God has three answers. One is yes, the other one is no, no and the third one is you've got to be kidding. <laughs> so I'm not sure which one it is yet.
1: <laughs>
0: well, Stephen Metcalf, maybe we should uh, let Jimmy Carter have that last word. Uh, Stephen Metcalf is the host of the Slate Culture GabFest. He's working on a book, which I can't wait for, about the 1980s. And thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much, Colin. It's always a total pleasure being on the show.